0: I knew I wanted to be an astronomer.
1: Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. Today is Thursday the 23rd of March, just after the autumn equinox in the Southern Hemisphere and the vernal or spring equinox in the Northern Hemisphere. Each fortnight we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy or optical astronomy and this week our special guest is Dr Elizabeth Tasker who is debunking the overhyped news that we have found Earth 2.0 in the TRAPPIST-1 system about 40 light years away. In each episode, we'll have a news roundup. To wrap up each show, we'll hear about what's up in the observable sky with Dr Ian Musgrave of AstroBlogger fame. So let's get stuck right into today's show. Hello, Elizabeth. Hi, Brendan. Welcome back, Elizabeth. Now, just to recap, Dr. Elizabeth Tasker featured on Astrophys back in September last year, and we heard how she is a computational astrophysicist who works with giant molecular clouds and makes them evolve inside computers. Elizabeth is at JAXA, the Institute of Space and Astronautical Science, Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency. Now, Elizabeth, last time you spoke with us on Astrophys, you told us about the realities of the habitability of Proxima b, a planet discovered orbiting a star quite close to us, and we referred our listeners to your Scientific American article at tinyurlcom forward slash Now, today, we're going to find out more about the seven planets orbiting a star about 40 light-years away called TRAPPIST-1. So tell us about this TRAPPIST-1 discovery. First of all, how do we detect planets orbiting around stars 40 light-years away?
2: Well, the trappist One seven siblings were found using a method called the transit technique. And this is when the planet passes between the star and our view from Earth, causing the star's brightness to dim very slightly. Now, it's a really tiny wink. We're talking about 1% drop in the star's luminosity. So very hard to spot, but we can now do it. And the TRAPPIST planets were found this way. Now, normally the transit technique gives us only a radius, so the physical size of the planet and not the mass. However, in the case of the TRAPPIST-1 system, these planets were also pulling on one another. And this gravitational tug from the sister planets caused the frequency of their transits to vary very slightly from circle to circle. And as a result, we were able to measure, I say we, they were able to measure this (laughs) and calculate the mass of each planet.
1: Yep, very good. So now, of course, we immediately got headlines saying seven alien Earths found orbiting nearby star and seven Earth-like planets and seven alien worlds discovered. So what do we actually know about these seven planets?
2: Well in terms of hard facts, it's always a bit disappointing. What we have is the radius for all the seven planets and the mass I think for six of them. But the mass isn't terribly well constrained, so as a result we have approximate densities for them. And we know how long it takes for them to orbit the star, so we have their year. But that's all we've got. Now when you think of Earth-like, you think of a lot more than just the size of the planet. We think of our oceans, but we don't know if these planets have seas. We think of our breathable atmosphere, but we don't know whether these planets even have an atmosphere or whether they have the geology and tectonics needed to produce an atmosphere. Ah, so yes. There's a huge amount of really guesswork based on very little information. Okay. Now, we do have some hints that things might not be Earth-like, but super interesting. Yep. In particular, These planets are in resonance, which means that they orbit exact number of orbits compared to one another. So the inner planet goes around eight times, and the planet just outside that goes around, I think, maybe six or five times in the same time it takes the inner planet to go around eight. So their orbits are an exact integer ratio of one another, and that's called resonance. And this is pretty unusual, and what it implies that we don't totally know is it implies the planets may have formed very far from the star, and then migrated inwards to their current position. Okay. Now, if this turns out to be true, these are probably planets very different from our own worlds like Mars, Venus and Earth, and maybe more like the cores of a planet such as Neptune.
1: Yep. Okay, so just in February this year, you and some co-authors had a paper published in Nature called The Language of exoplanet ranking metrics needs to change. Can you tell us a little bit about this paper and why you wrote it? What are your recommendations and how was it received with the astrophysical community?
2: So the title is rather long, but what it really means is please stop saying Earth 2.0 when we know so little about these planets. So. We all like the idea that we might find another Earth, but really, at the moment, we have very little information to go on. And one of the reasons we think, or we tend to talk about Earth-like planets, is the use of these metrics, for example, the habitable zone. Yep. Now, the TRAPPIST-1 system got a lot of excitement because three of the planets are Earth-sized and in the habitable zone. Now, the habitable zone is the region around the star where the amount of radiation from the star is similar to what the Earth gets, and therefore if an identical Earth-like planet were in that habitable zone, it would be able to support liquid water on its surface. But you can't reverse that logic. All we can say is, okay, if we were to find Earth 2.0, It would be in the habitable zone, but we can't say the planet is in the habitable zone and therefore it's Earth 2.0. Okay. The logic just doesn't add up. Yep. In fact, we know of roughly five times as many gas giants like Neptune and Jupiter in the habitable zone as we do of planets that probably have a rocky surface. Yep. And nobody is getting a glass of water on Jupiter. Exactly. So we wrote this, this article really to highlight this issue. And to ask people, you know, to take some time and think about how we might represent these discoveries better in the news and indeed in scientific literature. And this was generally received very well. In fact, completely coincidentally, the same time we submitted our article, another group submitted a very similar article saying calling things super Earth when, you know, they could be planets like Venus is also very misleading. And perhaps the whole language of exoplanets really needs to change.
1: It seems like when we do make discoveries and don't report accurately, all we end up with is
2: some clickbait. Exactly. It's pseudoscience and there's no excuse for it.
1: Excellent. Thank you very much for clarifying that, Elizabeth. Now, what's next to quench our thirst for alien worlds? And how far away are we from being able to discover exoplanets with atmospheres containing water and oxygen? What technologies could we use to do this? And are we just hanging out for the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope?
2: Well, there's no doubt that the JWST is going to be incredibly exciting. And it definitely has exoplanets on its agenda. But it also has every other possible astronomical object also on its agenda. So time is going to be at a premium. But we do have a number of other instruments in the next 10 to 20 years, which are really going to change the face of exoplanet science. So instruments like the Kepler Space Telescope told us there are thousands of worlds out there. There are thousands of Earth-like worlds out there. And perhaps most excitingly, it threw what we know about planet formation completely out the window when we found planets like Jupiter that were huddled up to their star, planets around binary systems like potentially something like Tatooine, and maybe planets with no stars at all, which we found through other methods. But now the time has come to start asking, what are these worlds really like? They may be Earth-sized, but are they Earth-like? And we'll do that, at least one of the techniques we're going to use is spectrometry. And what happens is as the planet transits across the star, light will shine through its atmosphere. And as the starlight passes through the atmosphere, certain wavelengths will be absorbed by the molecules there. And that will give us a fingerprint of missing wavelengths that tells us a little bit about what's in the atmosphere and gives us a hint of what might really be going on in the surface. Now the JWST is one instrument for that, but there's also the European Space Agency's aerial mission, which will launch in 2026. And the UK has a smaller mission called Twinkle, which will hopefully launch well ahead of that.
1: That is so exciting to have all of these new instruments coming online. Now, back to you personally, Elizabeth. I see you've been tripping around the planet a bit and discovering more about life in Japan, continuing your own astronomical research. Would you like to tell us some of those things that's been going on since we spoke to you last in September?
2: I think one of the things I'm most excited about is a new mission that the Japanese Aerospace Agency is planning called MMX. Yep. Martian Moon Explorer. And this is a mission to visit Phobos and Deimos, which are the two very small moons of Mars. Now Phobos and Deimos are a bit of a mystery, because we don't know how they formed. One possibility is they formed the same way that we think our moon does, by a giant impact on Mars's surface that threw up a lot of material that then formed a moon. And if that was true, these moons would be like time capsules of conditions on the very early Mars, And that might tell us something about how planets form and also even maybe how life is started. Wow. Another option is that these moons aren't part of Mars at all, but they were snagged from the asteroid belt. And these asteroids came a bit too close to Mars and Mars's gravity captured them. Now, if that is true, that would mean these asteroids might be kin to the kind of asteroids that hit the earlier and maybe delivered our oceans or even the beginnings of our organic molecules.
1: Wow. Okay. Fantastic. Look, I've got a final question for you, Elizabeth. Tell us about this book you've just got the proof copy of. What's its name? What's it about? And when will it be released? And how can we get our hands on it and read it?
2: So the book is called The Planet Factory, and it's on the formation of planets. I talk about the formation of our solar system because that's kind of what we know most about. But then I go on and discuss strange and weird worlds that are out there, like these rogue planets with no stars, like these Tatooine worlds with two stars, like planets that are on extremely bent orbits that gives them horrifically hot summers and snowball winters. And the book is Popular Science. I hope everyone can understand and enjoy it. I don't require you to have a science background to read it, so please give it a go. And it's out this September. In the US, it's out in November, and you can buy it on Amazon. In fact, it came available for pre order on Amazon before I'd submitted the final manuscript, which is a very strange <laughs> sensation.
1: Awesome. <laughs> and I'd remind our listeners now that you can follow Dr. Elizabeth Tusker on Twitter. She's at Girl and Cat. That's at G I R L A N D K A T. So follow her on Twitter and you'll keep up with everything that's happening at JAXA and astrophysics in general
2: Thank you very much, Brendan
1: Thank you very much, Elizabeth It's been a pleasure speaking with you again
2: Wonderful, thank you very much
1: Bye now Okay, bye Next up, we cross over to Adelaide to speak with astroblogger Dr. Ian Musgrave
0: Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How are things going in your end of the world? Very good, Ian. We've just
1: picked some pistachios, but we're having a very long run of very hot weather, and we're just about over it. Well, Ian, can you tell us what's up in
0: the sky this week? Well, what's up in the sky this week? The most prominent thing in the sky, if you're looking out to the east in the early afternoon. Is a pair of bright objects which is bright and yellow. The other one's not quite so bright but uh, a, a little bit of a bluish white. That's Jupiter and speaker. Jupiter and speaker are now rising quite early in the evening ahead of opposition next month. Opposition being when Jupiter is closest to the Earth in its orbit and also brightest and biggest if you're looking at it through a telescope. Jupiter is quite large and its orbit doesn't really come that close to us. Unlike Mars, the angular diameter of Jupiter it doesn't get spectacularly large like Mars does. Yep. Even so, this will be a really good opportunity for anyone with a telescope of any size, be it small or large, to start uh, looking at Jupiter, following its cloud belts if your uh, scope is big enough. And of course, watching the dance of the Galilean moons. The Galileo moons are putting on some really nice performances at the moment. You can see them wink out as they go under the shadow of Jupiter or go behind Jupiter. They also go in front of Jupiter, but you'll need a reasonable-sized telescope to be able to see the moons going in front of the telescope. Otherwise, the bright dot of the moon just vanishes against the brightness of Jupiter. Yes. What's the
1: best time to see Jupiter, Ian?
0: Uh, The best time to see Jupiter is from about 9.30, 10 o'clock until early in the morning. Jupiter is currently rising before twilight, but you need to wait until it gets above the horizon a fair bit before the turbulence. The atmosphere allows you to have a good telescopic target. The atmosphere is roiling so much that you won't get a decent view of the cloud bands of Jupiter in a telescope. Although, you're not so interested in telescopic views and you have an interesting horizon, the sight of Jupiter and Speaker rising together above creeks and hills can be enjoyed much earlier.
1: Very good. Well, you might want to go on and quickly explain how the planets
0: roughly follow the ecliptic. Yes. The ecliptic, of course, is the apparent path the Sun takes across the sky. Our listeners may be aware that the planets all orbit are pretty much in the same plane, although this is tilted at a little bit of an angle to the path of the sun. Uh, they never really go too uh, too much beyond uh, the path of the sun. Yep. So uh, this is why we have things like the transit of Venus, where sometimes Venus will go directly in front of the sun. Although this only happens every couple of hundred years or so. If you trace out the path of the sun through the stars, that's the ecliptic. The planets follow this uh, a little bit above or a little bit below all of the time, (laughs) not most of the time, but because of the way the paths are slightly angled to the actual orbit of the sun, sometimes the planets can be seen to cross the ecliptic, and so some will sometimes be above and sometimes be below. Very good. So what else is up in the sky, Ian? Well, if you're looking in the morning and you're looking above the northern horizon, you will see the constellation of Scorpius, the Scorpion, and Scorpius is very obvious because it looks like a back-front question mark at the moment. If you look below that, you'll see a quite bright, not as bright as Jupiter, quite bright object in the very heart of the dark lanes of the, the Milky Way. and. This is Saturn. Saturn is in a perfect position for telescopic observation if you can be bothered getting up at about 3 o'clock in the morning, but it's in a wonderful position if you're sweeping with binoculars. Saturn will look like a, a, an oval, you can't see its rings, but Saturn will be a different oval shape in binoculars, yep. but it's uh, next to some really nice territory. It's not far away from the, the Tripod and the Lagoon Nebula, so if you're into wide-field astrophotography, or even have a decent camera with a reasonable uh, field of view and that's able to take long exposures, you should be able to get Saturn very uh, good. tomorrow morning, bright and early. You'll be able to see the last of uh, the last quarter moon below tomorrow morning. Saturn will be just above the waning moon and so it should be fairly obvious which is which. As the weeks go on, you'll see uh, Jupiter rising earlier and earlier and becoming better and better for observation. What also happens as the weeks go on is that the Moon becomes more and more crescent. is really low to the horizon, and you'll need to have a a nice level horizon like the ocean or the desert or, or flat plains in order to see it. You don't have to get up early to see it. You'll be, need to be looking uh, very shortly after uh, sunset in the Southern Hemisphere, um, about 30 minutes after sunset in the Northern Hemisphere, where the thin crescent moon will be growing just a little bit to the left of Mercury. That'll be something nice to watch. The Northern Hemisphere too. comet 41P, is also brightening up.
1: Very good. And this might be a good time to remind people that if they want to read what Ian has been talking about, then they can just Google Astro Blogger and go to Ian's excellent Astro Blog site.
0: The other thing people might be interested in looking at is 73p. The fragments of 73P, a bit of a move about. 73P was in the news recently, and I mentioned this last week, that uh, it was broken apart again. If you've got astro-imaging capabilities on your telescope and can go down to magnitude 12, 73P would be an interesting target to see if you can follow the fragments. In other comet news, Australia's Terry Lovejoy has found his sixth comet The comet, now known as C2017E4 Lovejoy, was confirmed late last week. Unfortunately, unlike his previous comets, two of which were quite spectacular, this comet Lovejoy doesn't look like it's going to get particularly bright. At the moment, it's magnitude 15, and predictions are that it probably won't get much brighter than magnitude 12.
1: Fair enough. Very good.
0: Well, thank you very much, Ian AstroBlog Musgrove. Thank you very much, Brendan, for having me on. And I hope everyone's got clear skies.
1: Okay, thanks, Ian. See ya. Here is the AstroPhys News for Thursday, the 22nd of March, 2017. First, from Amy Middleton reporting for Cosmos Magazine the explosive beginnings of a supernova are spotted for the first time. An extremely rare recording of a massive star's explosive death reveals clues about the formation of supernovae. Reported in Nature Physics by a team led by Ofer Yoranov of the Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel, recent spectroscopic imaging captured the spectacular transformation of a star assumed to have been a red supergiant into a supernova just three hours after it began. It marks the first time a supernova has ever been seen in its infancy. Previously observed supernova, the predicted endpoint for about 50% of supergiant stars, have all been recorded after the metamorphosis had been underway for several days, meaning that information about the start of a process was already destroyed. The most recent event capturing the fiery death of a star was captured by the intermediate Polymar Transient Factory, an automated astronomical survey from Polymar Observatory in California, which has been monitoring the sky since 2013. The survey snaps two images per night over an hour period or longer of a particular astronomical field and then compares them to identify any transient events. Any flagged are then confirmed and examined by a team of researchers. Now, red supergiant stars themselves are not difficult to locate because they tend to stand out. They are 10 to 70 times the size of a sun and can be hundreds of thousands of times brighter. They pay for their extravagance, however, burning all their fuel and going nova between a couple of hundred thousand and 30 million years after forming. That said, and the universe being an enormously large sort of place, picking the one set to explode is extremely difficult. Statistically, it's very likely that not even a single star that is within one year of explosion currently exists in our galaxy, the researchers explain in their paper. Get this whole Cosmos magazine story at bit.ly forward slash supernova cosmos, all lowercase, all one word. Amy Middleton is a Melbourne-based journalist. Our next story is via monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. Letters, 2017, reported in phys.org slash astronomy. The discovery of young stars in old star clusters could send scientists back to the drawing board for one of the universe's most common objects. Dr. B. Quing-4 from ICRA the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research in Perth, Australia, said our understanding of how stars evolve is a cornerstone of astronomical science. There are a billion trillion stars in the universe, and we've been observing and classifying those we can see for more than a century, she said. Our models of stellar evolution are based on the assumption that stars within star clusters form from the same material at roughly the same time. A star cluster is a group of stars that share a common origin and are held together by gravity for some length of time. Because star clusters are assumed to contain stars of similar age and composition, researchers have used them as astronomical laboratories to understand how mass affects the evolution of stars. If this assumption turns out to be incorrect, as our findings suggest, then these important models will need to be revisited and revised, Dr. Foer said. We believe the younger stars have actually been created out of a matter ejected from older stars as they die, which would mean that we have discovered multiple generations of stars belonging to the same cluster. The stars were currently too faint to see using optical telescopes because of the dust that surrounds them. So they've been observed using infrared wavelengths by orbiting space telescopes Spitzer and Herschel, operated by NASA and the ESA, the European Space Agency. You can read more at bit.ly forward slash star clusters, or one word or lowercase. Our next story is from Marcus Strom, reporting for the Sydney Morning Herald. White dwarf X9 is closest star found orbiting a black hole at astonishing 12 million kilometers per hour. Evidence has been discovered of a star orbiting a black hole at just two and a half times the distance between the Earth and the Moon. Astronomically speaking, at a million kilometers, that's very, very close. No star before has been discovered lingering so near a black hole. Data taken from a telescope array near Narrabri in New South Wales has convinced astronomers that the star system 14,000 light years away is most likely that of a white dwarf and a black hole locked in a tight orbital dance. The white dwarf star X9 orbits what is very likely a black hole every 28 minutes at an astonishing 12 million kilometers an hour. That's 1% of the speed of light. This white dwarf is so close to the black hole that material is being pulled away from a star and dumped into a disk of matter around the black hole before that matter falls in, said lead author of a study, Arash Baramian, from the University of Alberta in Canada. Astronomers made the discovery using the Australian Telescope Compact Array, operated by the CSIRO near Narrabri in New South Wales, backed up with data from two of NASA's space telescopes, the Chandra X-ray Observatory and NUSTAR. Until the ATCA data came through in 2015, astronomers thought the binary system was what is known as a cataclysmic variable, where a white dwarf draws mass from a nearby sun-like star. Vlad Tutor, a PhD student at Curtin University who worked on the study, said, We detected strong radio jets from a system in 2015. These were not compatible with a cataclysmic variable system. Mr. Tudor said current gravitational wave detectors operated by LIGO could not pick up emissions from this system, but space-based detectors expected to be launched in the 2030s could detect them. We think the star might have been losing gas to the black hole for tens of millions of years and has now lost the majority of its mass said co-author of the study, Associate Professor James Miller-Jones from Curtin University and the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research, ICRA. The stellar dance between these two objects is taking place inside a globular cluster 47 tucanai, a group of about a million stars orbiting the galactic centre about 15,000 light-years from Earth. You can read more at bit.ly, that's BIT.ly forward slash dwarf black hole, all lowercase, all one word. And that's the news for this time. See you next time. Radio Wave.